Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I'll give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Dave. He has 23 years in the fire service, which comes with a lot of different experiences, PTSD, and so much more. So I'm excited to hear a little bit about Dave's life and just hear the stories that he has to share. So thank you so much for being here, Dave. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Well, thank you for having me on, Sarah. Um, like you said, I've got 23 years uh, well, I, I'm retired now from the fire service. I retired after 23 years. Um, I, well, with the, the PTSD bill in the state of Florida, I, I ended up filing a work, a worker's comp claim, um, in order to receive treatment for PTSD, uh, Prior to July of 2019, there wasn't any coverage in that sense. And uh, firefighters, first responders, that sort of thing in the state of Florida would need to use uh, their own personal health benefits to, to get assistance with dealing with PTSD. And um, through the years, it's become more apparent how uh, how susceptible first responders are uh, to to the traumas of the job, and uh, it it can lead to lead to a lot of uh, I don't know bad stuff. Say it that way. <laughs> yeah. So how did you originally get into the fire service? Well, I I was born and raised in central Florida. When, uh, when I was born, my father was in the Navy and I don't know, a year or two after I was born, he got out and pursued a career in the fire service. So growing up, um, I, I grew up, around firefighters and when i got out of high school i went to a year of college and then joined the navy um broke my leg and uh it was pretty good break and uh it led to me being medically discharged from the navy at which point i went back to college and then got into the fire service um, I went to the fire academy, be- became a volunteer firefighter in Martin County, which is kind of South Florida, it's, uh, the county just north of Palm Beach County. And while I was a volunteer there, I worked as a boat mechanic and, uh, and a waiter. Um, while I applied at, at other fire departments and I, I got hired on with, uh, a large metropolitan fire department in central Florida. And, uh, that was in 1999. 
So when I got hired, I had a couple of years as a, uh, as a volunteer firefighter. And, you know, that, that was the start of my career. I worked at a lot of really busy fire stations in some pretty rough parts of central Florida. Fought a lot of fire. Uh, worked quite a, quite a bit of trauma. Um, seen, seen the worst that, uh, that people can do to one another. And, and over time, if you don't process those experiences, it'll, it'll come back in, in pretty negative ways. And, um, there's still somewhat of a culture that it, it is getting better, but the culture is still such that it's, it's probably, it's, it's a, you know, it, it's not uncommon, uncommon for people in the fire service and law enforcement to view themselves as weak or broken if they're feeling like they need to get help. And so I, I can speak from my own experience that um, I let things go a lot longer than I should have. feel like nowadays there, there is a lot more education around PTSD and, and there's a lot more services available as a matter of fact, on, on my website, I have a whole page dedicated to resources um, where you know, it's for veterans, first responders, just like public safety professionals that uh, there's, a, there's quite a few nonprofits out there that um, raise money to to help veterans and first responders with not only treatment, but um, there's an organization in Texas that takes, takes dogs and trains them to be PTSD service dogs. And, and so this, that's uh, the Good, Good Canine Academy in Itasca, Texas. They actually... Uh, donated a beautiful Belgian Malinois to me, and that uh, that dog's been phenomenal. Uh, so, you know, for some of your listeners that may may not know really how PTSD manifests itself, um, you know, they might have a loved one that's in the fire service or law enforcement, or maybe they've returned home from combat. And, you know, it may be a little bit easier to see in a, in a veteran that has returned with symptoms of PTSD because their family or loved ones know the individual that left for combat and that's who they're expecting to get back. 
And when that person comes home and they're not quite the same person, you know, it's fairly recognizable. But when just say um, a husband and wife are, you know, living their, their life and the husband or the wife, either one works in the fire service and experiences traumatic calls and those things, it's almost like you have buckets or whatever that, you know, you fill up with experiences or fill up with stress. And what happens is over time, those traumatic events fill up that bucket. And at some point, it's, if you don't deal with it, it's full. And it can be the slightest stressor can overflow that bucket and it comes out and, you know, can be outbursts, anger. It can be emotional outbursts like crying for what seems like no reason. Nightmares, that's, that's a pretty common one. It does uh, diminish your, your judgment. And um, yeah, it can cause anxiety, hypervigilance, depression. So there's, uh, actually I have it again on my resources page where it goes uh, through the DSM-5 criteria for diagnosing somebody with, with PTSD. Um, there are specific criteria. And there's, there's different modalities for, for treating people with PTSD. Um, so there's, there's even stuff out there that is being researched by uh, you know, the United States government for combat veterans and even for first responders. Um, I've done just about everything. <laughs> Now, for you personally, what kind of made you realize or how were you able to say, like, I need help for the experiences that I'm experiencing? Well, I, I would say that the, the first time that I sought assistance with PTSD, it was, and now mind you, I, I worked my way up through the ranks from firefighter to engineer to lieutenant to battalion chief. And not long after I, uh, I was promoted to battalion chief, which that was in 2014, I believe. Um, yeah, 2014. So I had 15 years in the fire service working at some of the you know, some really busy stations. And to say that my bucket was fairly full is an understatement. And um, there was one incident after I... I took over the position of uh, chief of special operations and my office was just down the street 
from this daycare. And it was, I don't know, rush hour traffic. And not really sure about the details. I, I don't know if it was a stolen vehicle that was involved, but there was a vehicle that was ran off the road. It crossed through oncoming traffic and went straight in to the front wall of this daycare. And at that moment, there was a room full of four and five-year-olds sitting down for snack time. And just beyond that table of children was a wall with a door that led into a playroom that was full of more children. And the car went through all of those kids and came to rest against the back wall. And when I arrived on scene, it was pretty chaotic, to say the least. Kind of looked like a bomb had gone off when you walked into into the building it was full of dust and just particles floating around in the air and you know you could smell the kind of the smell of burnt transmission fluid and and like burnt hair and uh there was there was multiple children underneath the car. And it was a crew of four individuals that they're uh, special operations personnel that happened to be training at the training facility, which is situated behind where my office was. Uh, so they, they got on scene rather quickly, and they had went right to work. And when I arrived on scene, they were trying to lift the car off of those children. And um, now there's some other details that, you know, aren't really necessary to talk about, but you can imagine what a car can do to a small child. And, um, and there was multiple children that were injured. We had shut down the roadway, and as we evaluated all the children, we just, we had ambulances arriving on scene, and we would hand them children, and they would leave. And it was, you know, ambulance after ambulance, and at one point, I was working to evaluate small group of children and uh, there was one little girl that she was extremely pale her arm was broken was, uh, bent at a severe angle uh, midway up her forearm and she wasn't crying and when I touched her arm she didn't yell out and then when I started to evaluate her, because her color didn't look good, 
uh, pressed on her abdomen and that's when she screamed out. And uh, when I lifted up her shirt a little bit, there was a pretty good mark. It looked like the tire had gone over her abdomen. And, um, and it immediately made me think of another little girl that I had ran on in the parking lot of a grocery store that had been backed over and it was the same thing. And, you know, that kind of trauma can do a lot of damage internally and uh, can cause ruptured organs and internal bleeding. And that's really what I thought was going on with this little girl. And, um, and I took her, took her out to the front, out to the roadway and handed her off and um and then lost track of her i tried to find out which hospital she was transported to but you know that's all protected information so i just went from hospital to hospital asking and uh and i ended up coming face to face with the mother of one of the kids that was in the hospital and she asked if I had been on that call and and I said yeah and she just grabbed me and it was like at that moment I broke and I started crying and I <laughs> and I really didn't know what was happening to me <laughs> and she it was so bizarre so bizarre because here I am, you know, I'm six feet tall, 200 pounds, kind of a big guy. And this little woman is comforting me. And, uh, and then she, she went upstairs and found the, the guardians of the little girl. Because she thought that, cause she asked why I was there. And I said, you know, I wanted to check on the kids that were there and see if, the one little girl had survived because it didn't seem like it was survivable to me. And, and she said that she thought she knew who I was talking about. And she went upstairs and she came back down and said, yeah, they'd like to meet you. And so I went up and um, met the little girl and her, her grandparents and um and i had brought her a couple of things for her stay in the hospital and um spent a little time with her and kind of felt like all right this is pretty good you know she she made it and and then some other parents came in and they asked if you know, I wanted to see their kid, and, and so then I met the little one of the little boys that was under the car that got burnt by the engine block. And he had some pretty good burns and some other injuries, and uh, man, what a tough little kid! And, uh, and I went in there, and he was like super excited to see me and uh 
it's pretty pretty interesting and um and it wasn't long after that that i started having some really bad nightmares and um and it wasn't really well can't really say for sure what the nightmares were about because i couldn't remember them i would wake up and it would be so you know a lot of what happens with ptsd is your fight or flight response is triggered constantly and you know the only thing that i can really you know, kind of describe it as is like it's like that fight or flight response was triggered at an extreme level while i was sleeping and it would cause me to wake up i would be soaking wet heart racing and i would be experiencing some very extreme emotion whether it be like sobbing crying extreme anger or extreme fear where you know you set up immediately and you're ready to fight or you're ready to like you know you're trying to get away from something and it just um started becoming more frequent and i couldn't find anybody that really seemed to help didn't seem like they were equipped to to help me and then not long after that and this is funny that we're having this conversation because this saturday so we're recording this before it actually is released but you know in in four days it's june 8th today as we record this my birthday is june 12th which is so we're coming up on the anniversary of the pulse nightclub massacre which occurred on june 12th and after that tragedy the uh there's this program at UCF that was designed for uh, combat veterans with PTSD. And after Pulse, they made, and this is just my understanding, I don't know how accurate this is, but as far as what I know to be true, and I haven't verified it, but I believe this is true, that after the Pulse nightclub massacre, UCF Restores made their services available to first responders. Uh, and they, uh, they did an outreach to um, quite a few, or actually to everybody that was on scene there. And that therapy that they do there is immersion therapy which is pretty rough. Um, I, I went through the program twice, actually. Um, the first time I went through it, it was fairly, it was a fairly new program, and there was 
couple of ways that you could approach treatment where it was like you would go and visit the office a couple of times a week. And then there was the intensive outpatient program that um, you would go every day, all day long for three weeks. And uh, I ended up doing that program as well. But initially what I did was the, you know, two to three times a week and, um, but, you know, like I did, did pretty good and kind of got my feet back under me, but, you know, you go back to work and in 2019, you know, I had accumulated five more years of traumatic calls running the gambit from, you know, traumatic deaths, animal attacks, child abuse, like pretty bad. So, you know, I, I, I believe that, you know, there are, there are individuals that seem to be better equipped to process those types of calls. And I'm, I don't know what, what it is that uh, makes them so resilient, because I'm not one of them. Yeah, I, uh, I've carried around a lot of a lot of messed up stuff, and you know, even after you know doing years now of of therapy and, and treatment, that um, different modalities, EMDR cognitive behavioral therapy, hypnotherapy, like they tried everything and, and everything has its, its uh, place. Um, they all help in their own way. But one thing that it doesn't do, it doesn't make those memories go away. And it just helps you better. It helps you to be better equipped to to handle those thoughts. I, I know of individuals that choose not to get help because they feel like, well, I've done this and it didn't help me at all. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm just screwed. You know, this is how I'm going to feel forever. And they end up feeling broken. And uh, I'm kind of lost. And I can tell you that I felt that way before. Um, and it's kind of, well, I was leading into that. And in 2019, there was several calls that I went on that were, were pretty bad. And uh, they involved extremely traumatic deaths. It's not so much seeing that stuff, but when you see a family member respond to that loss. And there's a sound that 
people make when that reality hits them. And it's, uh, it's guttural and primal, and it'll stay with you for the rest of your life. And um, I've heard grown men make that sound, and I've heard teenage girls make that sound. And it's the same. Maybe a different pitch, but it's the same, you know? And it's, uh, it's horrible. And, uh, and so it was around, around August of 2019 that I started trying to get some additional help. Because um, I was like, man, you know, I've already gone through all this treatment. I'm supposed to be good. You know, um, I've got all these tools. How come I'm back having nightmares and back just, you know, making bad decisions? You can, like, it, it definitely, um, you end up finding things that make you feel better or help you, you know, uh, dull that those bad feelings um, it can be drinking it can be drugs it can be sex it can be you know just like self-destructive behavior um, chasing adrenaline some people just work all the time and you know in the fire service if you're running from thinking about that stuff by working more you're exposing yourself to more of those events and so it it just you're just delaying the inevitable and i, I did it i made some Poor decisions I made. There was some self-destructive behavior towards the end of my career, and, um, and I just I hope that anybody listening to this can maybe recognize earlier than I did, and um, if they are making poor decisions that maybe seem out of character can be a pretty good indicator that you know you're suffering from PTSD and you there's a lot of resources out there that can help and there's there is no shame in it I've you know I've got my podcast from members to excellence that is uh you know, I interview veterans and first responders and, you know, talk to some amazing people that have suffered uh, for a long time with PTSD only to go, you know what, it's, uh, it's not a sign of weakness to, like, really admit that you need help. It's, you know, it takes 
especially in the environment of public safety and the armed forces, it does take a little more courage to admit that you need help and actually get the help you need. Um, and then not only that, but to talk to other people about it. Um, Cause you're kind of putting yourself out there. Uh, you know, I, I feel that, you know, I, I missed out on a, another promotion because of some of my decisions and you know, maybe some of my behavior. So uh, I, I do talk a lot about leadership. That's something that I teach. And a huge component of that is self-leadership and self-awareness. And um, can't expect to lead other people if you can't lead yourself. Yeah, I really appreciate the fact that you were willing to share such a traumatic experience. Um, just everything that you went through um, that made you realize like, hey, my bucket's full. Um, I think that analogy also is extremely helpful. Um, and like you said early on, you know, there are more resources out there. People are more willing to talk about it maybe than they were 20 years ago. So hopefully people are able to be self-aware and realize what is going on and or like if you're a partner or a friend of somebody who's working as a first responder that being able to see different actions and stuff like that and knowing that hey maybe they should talk to somebody obviously you know you kind of said at one point you felt like oh I should be good you know, I've been through things and that's not the reality of PTSD and not the reality of probably a lot of things that you don't just kind of get better. Um, so I'm kind of curious to know because you mentioned that you had a dog that was trained to help with PTSD and I'm, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about that. So it's, uh, it's pretty interesting because really what with PTSD service dogs do is they, well, they help kind of distract you. They recognize when you're getting anxious. So something that I had to do a lot of work on was when I'm in crowded places or um, even crowded restaurants. It was, uh, you know, years. I had to be facing the door and know where the exits were. Um, I, I couldn't have my back to a big part of a restaurant. If people were too close to me, I got extremely anxious and aggressive. Um, you know, I don't know if you can imagine me in a grocery store bumping people with my cart, but <laughs> I've done it. <laughs> and, and then I leave and I'm like, man, you gotta get a hold of yourself. But you know, like when people are in your space and you're at that heightened level of 
this man, you know, there's no reason for you to be this close to me. There's plenty of room. Why are you, I'm standing here. You saw me standing here, get away from me, you know? And then you just kind of accidentally bump them with your cart, you know? Like, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. <laughs> uh, but what Victor does is, and so it's Victor with a K, Belgian spelling, um, and I named him after, after Victor Frankl. I don't know if you know who that is, but uh, he wrote the book, A Man's Search for Meaning. And he, um, he developed logotherapy, which is kind of a parallel to psychotherapy that you know, Sigmund Freud developed around the same time. Well, Viktor Frankl spent a bulk of World War II in concentration camps, death camps, and he survived. And he wrote A Man's Search for Meaning um, to try and help people that have gone through those types of traumatic events and you know maybe have survivor's guilt or really don't know like why like you have to you have to find a purpose each individual has to find their own purpose create it you can't let anybody else define your purpose so anyways that's where I got his name from. And uh, <laughs> he, uh, he actually helps um, with anxiety and, and depression just by being super sweet. And the other thing that is pretty incredible about him is that, you know, I talked a little bit about nightmares. And um, somehow he knows when I'm having a nightmare and he'll put both of his paws up on the bed and put his nose right on my neck and, and blow out just until I wake up. And sometimes it's like, man, get off me. <laughs> but he won't stop until I pet him and he'll just sit next to the bed with his head on the bed and, insist that I pet him and it just kind of calms everything down. And then once he feels I'm cool, he goes and lays down, goes back to sleep. And I, the woman that trained him, I asked her about it and she was like, Oh yeah, no, I didn't train him to do that. You can't train a dog to do that. <laughs> That's, she's like, that's just the, the beauty of these dogs, these animals that when they connect with you, they, they really connect with you and they, they want you to feel good. And, uh, and he's just, you know, and he does help keep people at a distance not that he he's actually very sweet and he would love it if i let 
people pet him, but he's just an attention, uh, an attention hound. <laughs> and if, if I let people pet him, he's just like right on him, wants him to keep on going. Don't stop petting me. And, uh, and so I, I can't, I just can't let people do that because he's there for me and, and it does keep people um, you know, at an, at an appropriate distance. So that's good. And, you know, other service dogs do other things because, you know, some dogs are trained to recognize that anxiety. If like con a lot of combat veterans, their, their anxiety comes from objects that are near the roadway. You know, it could be, you know, a backpack that's sitting on the side of the road and it's like, you know, that's an IED, but really it's just some kid's backpack at the bus stop, you know, and, and these types of things can really trigger individuals and it can be bad. And, uh, and so that's what, you know, a lot of training goes into, uh, preparing one of these service dogs for a particular individual. Now you've mentioned a little bit. Um, with teaching your website, you've got a podcast. Um, so what is it you, that you've been up to since you retired? Well, I am working with an editor right now. I, I wrote a book on leadership and leadership philosophy. And uh, I talk about some of my experiences, um, you know, mistakes that I've made that I hope will help other people um, you know, better leaders and maybe not make the same mistakes that I've made. Uh, I, I started doing the podcast in an attempt to, to help people learn from my mistakes and learn from other people's mistakes because there isn't a person out there that doesn't fall on their face and it's what we do after that that really defines us and i you know the podcast is named from embers to excellence you know when you crash and burn there's an opportunity there to come back wiser and stronger and and be able to help other people achieve more and to avoid those same mistakes. And, um, and I can, I can tell you from experience, I was, uh, I was a very well-respected chief officer and, and I made some, uh, some decisions that really, um, caused some embarrassment for me and uh, kind of derailed some efforts that um, that were kind of like in the fire, in the forge, you know, is developing a program to, to help women in the fire service uh, develop as leaders and, you know, connect them with other women that had achieved, um, quite a bit in the fire service and uh, 
you know, one of the things that is pretty prevalent in the fire service in the United States is there's very few women. Um, the numbers of women are getting better, but it's still kind of an exclusive culture. And, you know, and I think a lot of people view it as a man's world that is trying to adapt to the presence of women. And it shouldn't be that way as far as I'm concerned. Um, what women bring to the table is some amazing leadership tools that if men can recognize those leadership abilities and, and learn from their women counterparts, um, they'd be better leaders for it. And, uh, you know, a lot of, I've done a lot of research uh, around leadership. I've got a master's degree in public administration, and I, I wrote my capstone on leadership in the fire service. And there is quite a bit of research already done on uh, leadership, specific types of leadership and how effective they are in the uh, fire service environment. And one of, one of the men that I studied, Dan Goleman, he wrote about emotional intelligence and how that is the most important factor in being effective as a leader. And there's quite a few components of emotional intelligence. And men are strong in certain areas, just inherently, like, you know, more so you would have a higher percentage of men that are stronger in this area, um, you know, command presence and like, you know, maybe sometimes misplaced confidence, you know, uh, whereas women tend to not put themselves out there so much. Um, but where women are strong is their ability to communicate, their ability to create and maintain good relationships, their ability to be empathetic with the people that they're leading. And those are some of the most important components of effective leadership. And if you don't have good, good solid women in leadership positions that, that have those traits and, you know, work with men that are strong in other areas. And they, I mean, to me, it's a no brainer, but it's like, uh, you know, talking about it will raise a lot of eyebrows in the firehouse. So, <laughs> um, but you know, for women in the fire service, I'm preaching to the choir. And so, um, hopefully with my book and you know, a lot of what I teach things, things can start to change a little quicker because things are changing. It's just 
not as quick as I'd like to see them change. And I know a lot of people out there would like to see them change faster as well. So that's what I've been doing. <laughs> now we're kind of up on time. Is there anything, any last words you would like to share with the listeners before I wrap things up? Well, if anybody listening is, well, one, if you yourself are experiencing symptoms of PTSD and you're in an environment that you feel maybe is going to frown upon you seeking help, well, think about this. Ultimately, if you don't get help, it's not going to get better. And over the last year, I've had several friends that have committed suicide. And it is directly linked to PTSD. It is hard to admit that you um, need help. But if you're feeling broken, just know that you're not feeling broken it, or you're not broken. You may feel that way, but you aren't. Our bodies, our brains are designed to function a certain way. That fight or flight response is genetics. We are designed to, to learn from our environment and adapt to it. And if we're constantly exposed to traumatic events, that's why we're at that heightened sense, you know, that that fighter, we're in that fight or flight response constantly. And your body can't live like that. And it messes up everything else. It causes depression, anxiety, and all that. So you're not broken. And you, you can change that response. Um, you can change your body's chemistry. You can, there's so many different things that you can do to help yourself and that others can help you do. So realize that you're not broken. Your body, your brain is working the way it's supposed to, given the circumstances. Um, now, as far as leadership goes, if you are in a leadership position and you have people that you're charged with leading, you should feel obligated to look out for them, look out for their well-being, their mental and physical well-being, and really seek to recognize those symptoms in them. And maybe if their behavior isn't, uh, you know, in line with their character, that can be a really good indicator that they need some help and they may not be quick to, to admit it, but it's a good indicator. And, um, you know, something that I've said for a long time and I, I say it a lot is, you know, the, the only real measure for the effectiveness of a leader is the success of their team. You know, if, if a leader's team is falling apart, you can, 
you know, even if it's like a lot of people tend to think that if their team isn't functioning at a high level, it's the team that's that's damaged or messed up. But that leader that leader has some ownership, and they really need to be looking at themselves in the mirror, and uh, and remember that you know it's uh, a leader can't consider themselves successful unless their team is successful. I'd say that's. That's about all I have. Thank you very much for having me on and listening to me. <laughs> well, I appreciate all of those last thoughts. There are lots of good information um, from all different aspects of things we've talked about. Now, with all of my guests at the end, I ask a random question to do with anything we've talked about. So a little bit lighter than some of the things we've talked about today. So because you're in Florida, my question for you is, what is your ideal winter day? Well, my ideal winter day, I'd say probably around 60 degrees. Got the, the uh, fire going out on the back patio. You know, maybe roast some marshmallows and... You know, hang out outside and enjoy, enjoy, enjoy the cool air. Because it's not, like there's maybe a handful of days where it might dip into the 20s. And on a real, in a really harsh winter, maybe we'll get a hard freeze. But, <laughs> you know, I, I've spent some time up north. It's nothing like that. So I, I look forward to winter. I like the cooler weather. A little, a little bit better than the summer here. So, yeah, that, that's the ideal winter day. About 60 degrees. <laughs> All right, that brings this episode to a close. So as I mentioned, I will be leaving Dave's website in the description. From there, you can get to his podcast, you can get to the resource list that he mentioned. And from that resource list, I will also be listing out the book that he mentioned, A Man's Search for Meaning, so that you can find that easily as well. And of course, the podcast, this podcast website, and nope, we're going to get rid of that. And of course, if you'd like to connect with the podcast here, our website is in the description. That will bring you to all of our social media, Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. And of course, we have a Patreon for monetary support. And if you would like to be a guest on the podcast, feel free to email me. The email is there as well. So thank you so much, Dave, for spending time with me today, sharing all of your stories. It was great to hear all of your perspective. And to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next week. Bye. Thank you so much, Sarah. And uh, to all your listeners, thank you for, uh, for this platform to be able to be heard. So thank you, Sarah. Thank you.